Well, hey, Harvest, good morning. Um, do me a favor, grab uh, your Bibles if you have them with you. Turn to Mark 7. Uh, before we jump into the text, Happy New Year. And uh, I know uh, it's, it's good to be into 2021. I'm sure many of you are glad to say goodbye to 2020. 2020 was a difficult year and in many ways a... Uh, uh, a real test and a trial for us as a church. I'm looking forward to 2021, but I'm also hoping that even the season that we've just been through in 2020 uh, as a church, God is going to use to uh, refine us and to uh, make us a church that is more um, in his image and what he's called us to be. Before we jump into the text, there's a couple things that I need to uh, bring to your attention. First, hopefully you saw an announcement that Cal put out on social media and sent via email to our church this week. We are uh, going to be meeting again in-person uh, gatherings beginning on January 16th. And uh, even as I got here this morning, uh, one of the members of our praise team were like, well, how confident are you, are you that that's going to happen? And I'm like, I'm totally confident that's going to happen. When we shut down in November, um, it was because of kind of the, the situation with COVID in our community and overrunning our hospitals. And we had talked to doctors and they had urged us that that was the wise decision. Well, we've gone back to those same doctors. They say um, we're in a much different position today than we were six weeks ago. And, and they give us the confidence to say that we're going to be able to reopen. We're also seeing other things in our um, society, schools, and other things begin to reopen as well. So we are very, very excited to begin in-person gatherings again on January 16th. In order for that to happen, um, we are really going to need the church to step up and respond and uh, be willing to volunteer to kind of fit the needs in the children's ministry. I would really encourage you to um, attend one service and uh, be willing to serve at another service because we want as quick as we can for our gatherings to be as effective as they can, not just in the main room, but for our children as well. And then the second thing I'd like to bring to your attention before we jump into the text is just so you remember, um, at the end of uh, this message, we're going to be sharing in communion together. So though we're not together this morning and we're meeting in different places and in different homes, just be preparing your hearts for communion at the end of this message. In Mark 7, just to give you an idea of where we are, Jesus is on a road trip. And uh, this is a chapter where Jesus, for the only time in his ministry, he leaves the nation of Israel and he actually travels up north into what is modern day uh, Lebanon. And then from there, he's going to travel southeast and he's going to go around the east side of the Sea of Galilee into a region that back in his day was known as the Decapolis but, but today is kind of modern-day Syria. So, so Jesus leaves the nation of Israel. He's going to walk and travel with his disciples a, a distance of about 150 miles. So this is not a short trip. This probably took several weeks, possibly even a month. We are about a year away from Jesus entering Jerusalem and going to the cross. And, and Jesus is on this road trip uh, scholars are, are, are not sure why or what the purpose of this trip was. Some have said he's just going to get alone to, to seek the Lord. Others say that this was kind of a time to focus on the disciples, to train them for the battle that lays ahead. Mark gives us no indication of what Jesus taught while he was on this trip. Actually, Mark just focuses in on two interactions that Jesus has with individuals one while he is up in Lebanon and the second while he is in Syria. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to focus on that first interaction and we're going to pick up the story in Mark 7. I, I'm going to just read starting in verse 24. Mark 7, 24, it says this, 
It says, and from there uh, he arose, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit uh, of... uh, had an unclean spirit, heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. Verse 26, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Jesus said to her, hear this in verse 27, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. So, so as we read through those few verses in this encounter, does, does the things that Jesus said to this woman surprise you? Are, are you caught a little bit off guard by how he responded to this woman asking for help. It's interesting as I read the commentaries, they struggled to justify or to make sense out of why Jesus would refer or allude to this woman and the woman's daughter, his his dogs, compared to the children of Israel. The commentators point out that in the Greek, there's two words for dog. One of them is kind of for a wild dog and the other is kind of for a household pet. And they say, Jesus carefully chose the household pet word for a dog as he said this to the woman. But I, I got to tell you, just listening to that, if I go back and read verse 27, and it says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the poodles. I, I'm not sure that takes the edge off what Jesus is saying. I'm not sure that softens the blow. It's interesting. Sometimes I'll find myself in a conversation or a situation where I'm talking to somebody and, and I get too aggressive, I get too harsh, I get too sarcastic and Kristen will come alongside of me and kind of take the edge off of what I said. She'll be like, no, 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 he didn't mean it that way and I, I know what he said and how it sounded but I think what he was trying to say was this and she's trying to soften the way that I communicated what I was trying to say. Is, is that what Jesus needs in this situation? Does he need a Kristen to come alongside of him and take the edge off what appears to be his directness, what appears to maybe even be harsh? Maybe this is the answer. Maybe what we should do is just take a moment, look back up at verse 27, and if you've got your Bibles in front of you, grab a pen and just kind of scratch out verse 27. Maybe we should just ignore Jesus' response here because it's hard or it's difficult for us to understand. It's not like not even socially acceptable the way Jesus addressed this woman. But my fear would be that if we try to gloss over what Jesus said, if we try to make excuses for Jesus, to apologize for Jesus, rather than look directly at what he says, we're going to miss the power of what Jesus was trying to communicate to this woman and to his disciples in this moment. Remember, Jesus is uh, on a trip. He is focused on training his disciples for what lies ahead. Look at verse 24, even as we begin this text. Look what it says in uh, just starting the story. It says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So the first thing we need to understand is, where was he leaving from? We understand that he went to Lebanon, to Tyre and Sidon, but, but where exactly had he been? Where was there that he's leaving from? 
And if you go back to the start of chapter 7 of Mark, I won't take the time to develop all of this in deep detail, but what we find in Mark 7 is he was in a drag-down fight with the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, over cleanliness, over the uh, washing of your hands and the fact that the disciples were not washing their hands according to the tradition of the elders. It says in Mark 1, Now the Pharisees gathered to him and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. And then later in verse 5, it says, And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? What has happened here is, please note, they're, they're not accusing Jesus of breaking Old Testament law. They're accusing Jesus of breaking the tradition of the elders. Throughout the centuries since God had given the law to Moses, the scribes had written down their interpretations or commentaries of what it meant and exactly how you were required to wash your hands. And they were saying, Jesus, you're not doing this in accordance with the tradition of the elders. You had to wash your hands if you came into contact with anything that was impure. You would eat your hands before, or wash your hands before every course of a meal. And interesting as this story progresses, you would definitely wash your hands if you had been out of the country or in the presence of a Gentile. The purpose of the cleanliness laws in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament law, it was basically a visual picture of what it means to come into the presence of a holy God, that repentance was required before you entered the presence of a holy God. The Pharisees had missed the entire point. They, they didn't see the cleanliness laws as their need for repentance. They, they actually looked at those laws and said, if we follow these laws um, to the letter, if we expand on the laws, if we go beyond what they require, we can make ourselves acceptable before a holy God. And in missing the point of the cleanliness laws, laws they missed their need for a savior. Some of you will remember at the beginning of this series, we were back in Luke 4 and we discussed this idea that sadly the nation of Israel and the religious leaders, they were looking for a superhero, not a savior. They, they, they wanted a Messiah who would come and he would punish the bad people and rescue the good people. And because they envisioned themselves as the good people, they were looking for a superhero. What they failed to see is they needed a savior, someone who would take our place that would redeem us that would pay the price for our sin in Luke 4 18 Jesus is back in Nazareth and he gives the mission statement for his entire earthly ministry and he says I've come and I've been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor to proclaim liberty to captives to recover the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the people were so excited when Jesus came on the scene and preached these things, these things. But Jesus was very quick to say, uh, don't get too excited too soon because my ministry is going to look very different than maybe what you would expect. And he tells the people in his hometown, Nazareth, two stories. One, that in the Old Testament, when Elijah was ministering, there was a widow by the name of Zarephath. She was actually from Sidon, the very place that Jesus is encountering this woman in our text. And, and Jesus chose to provide for her, though there were many widows and children that were starving in Israel. And he goes on and tells a second story of a Syrian general who has leprosy. And though there were many in Israel that were uh, suffering from leprosy, he chose to heal a Syrian army general 
rather than his own people. And when the people heard Jesus tell these stories, man, their, their whole outlook towards Jesus as Messiah changed. They became hostile. They sought to throw him off a cliff to destroy him. And here Jesus is on this road trip going to the very places he referenced back in his hometown of Nazareth. He's up in Lebanon and Sidon. He's going to go down into Syria, into the Decapolis, and meet and talk with two individuals. Throughout Jesus' ministry, the battle with the religious leaders continues to escalate until the point that we get to Matthew 12. Nate preached on this a few weeks ago. And in Matthew 12, Jesus is doing miracles. So people are like, where does this man get the power to do these miracles? Could he be the Messiah? And the religious leaders say, no, he does the miracles that he does through the power of Satan, thereby rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. Jesus in chapter 13 pivots his ministry. Now he's speaking in parables and his focus is on his followers and his disciples rather than the masses the religious leaders have rejected and Jesus is marking uh, the rest of his ministry as he heads towards the cross, focused in on training his disciples. In Mark 7, after this debate with whether or not his disciples are properly washing their hands. Jesus looks at the leaders and in verse six, he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. And then in verse 17, after that encounter is done, he enters a house with his disciples. The people have left and his disciples ask him, what were you trying to say to the Pharisees? They wanted a greater explanation. And Jesus says, listen, it's not what's outside of a person. It's not what they eat. It's not whether or not they wash their hands that defiles somebody. What, what, what matters, what determines a person's holiness is what comes from their heart. Holiness is a matter of the heart. And, and just by the way, who has the power to change someone's heart? Only God can do that. Inner holiness is what is needed to be acceptable to God and it just shows our need and how desperate we are for a savior. So that's where he's coming from. He's leaving Galilee and these constant battles with the Pharisees. He's trying to get away. He leaves the nation of Israel and it says he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon back in verse 24. He enters Gentile territory. And the irony of that is just leaving Israel and going into Lebanon would have made him unclean. It says in verse 24, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. The words little daughter there speak less of age and, and more of the fact that she was beloved. We don't know the age of this woman's daughter. She really could have been of any age, but she is demon oppressed. In our Western civilization where we focus on what can be proven and, and everything's got to have a scientific explanation, we have become dismissive of the idea of spiritual warfare. And it should come as no surprise to us that when Jesus was here on earth during his first visitation, that there was an increase in spiritual activity, uh, Jesus and the early church um, disciples and apostles were constantly battling demon oppression. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that as we get closer and closer to Jesus' second visitation, that we will see an increase in spiritual warfare as well. 
verse 26 says, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. The, the text of that, or the, the, the context of that word begged isn't that she begged once. It means that she was continually begging Jesus. She kept on begging. She was persistent. Matthew 15 is kind of a parallel passage to Mark 7. Matthew gives us some details that Mark doesn't. It's interesting in Matthew 15, 22, it says, And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So just understand, it's, it's bad to be a Gentile in the eyes of the Israelite leaders. It, it, you would have been unclean. It's a whole nother thing to be Syrophoenician by descent because that would show that you were of Greek descent. But, but Matthew adds this word, she's a Canaanite. Now the Canaanites were hated by the Israelites. When Israel was given the promised land, they were told to exterminate all Canaanites. This is a woman that should not exist. The, the, the disciples would have viewed her as lower than a tax collector. Goes on in verse 23, another description that Matthew gives that uh, Mark skips over. It says, as she approaches him and begins to beg on behalf of her daughter, it says this in Matthew 15, 23, but Jesus did not answer her a word. So, so before Jesus ever calls her a dog or infers that her and her daughter are dogs, before he even does that, he ignores her. It's been said that the opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference. And, and indifference communicates that I really don't care about you or your needs or what happens to you. So, so as a woman approaches Jesus in desperate need, why would Jesus respond by ignoring her? As she begs and is in such desperate need and, and, and so persistent, why does Jesus respond without a word? Jesus is in the business of exposing hearts. And it's interesting what Matthew says next. Look at, verse, look at the end of verse 23. And his disciples came and begged Jesus, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. See, see by Jesus not responding to her quickly, by him remaining silent, the, the disciples filled in the gap. And, and, and that gap of silence that Jesus created exposed the disciples' hearts. They, they were like, Send her away. Get her to leave. Get her out of here. She's not worthy of your attention. She's not worthy of your time. And, and sadly, What's being revealed here is that though Jesus was constantly going after the scribes and the Pharisees for their heart and their lack of compassion, what's revealed in Jesus' silence is that the disciples have the same problem. And though they would hate to admit it, their hearts aren't very far from that of the religious leaders in Israel. The disciples had already been dismissive of her. They had looked at her race. They had looked at her sex. They had looked at her condition. And they said, listen, we're going to dismiss her. The disciples' hearts had been exposed. It's interesting. I wish Mark and Matthew had given more detail. I'd like to know which disciple said, send her away. Was it Matthew? The the tax collector 
who Jesus had taken in as one of his own, as one of his own disciples? Was it uh, James and John, the, the fishermen, the least qualified to follow in the footsteps of a rabbi? Was it them that said, send her away? Had they become so hypocritical that they had forgotten their own condition when Jesus found them? That they were so quick to dismiss this woman. Matthew 15, 24, and 25, it says this. Jesus answered when they said to send him away. He looked at the woman. This is interesting too. Mark doesn't contain this detail, but look what Matthew says. Before Jesus says anything about her being under the table like a dog, he, he says this. Jesus answered, said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, so in essence, he's saying this gospel, this healing that I came to, to bring, it's not intended for you. Another very difficult thing that Jesus says. Now, now I need to explain something. When, when Jesus talks about bringing the gospel to Israel, that was not the ends, that was the means. Jesus chose Israel to be the nation, his chosen people, and from the nation of Israel, it was always the intent that the gospel would spread throughout all the nations and all the peoples of the world. We see this all the way back in Jesus' first choosing of Abram or Abraham and the promise that he made to him in Genesis 12. Jesus said to Abram, as soon as he chose him to be a nation, he says this, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we know right from the beginning that the blessing was not just intended for the nation of Israel. It was intended for all the families of the world. And we see in Revelation at the end of the story, at the beginning and at the end, we see in Revelation 7 that there's a great multitude, the church gathered in heaven, and it is comprised of people from every nation, tribe, people, and languages. We, we are not an afterthought in the gospel story. We were always the ends, but the means was that the gospel would come first to the nation of Israel. And in essence, what he's saying to this woman is, the time for me to minister to the Gentiles is not now. Another very difficult thing that he says. Verse 25 of Matthew 17, after he says this, it says, but she came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. This is a harsh gospel. That's what I've entitled the message. Here's the first point. These aren't very complicated. Point number one is this. We are dogs. We are dogs. Now, as I wrote this point, even as I was looking at it in review this morning, I'm like, what a great first point for a first message of 2021, right? With 2020 as a backdrop, what a, what a better way to turn the page and, and start with such a positive first point. Well, well, give me some grace. I was actually preparing the message in 2020, so this is kind of carryover from last year. But the first point, I would say this, we are dogs. Jesus says to her, and let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And though that seems harsh on its surface, what we're looking at, what Jesus is trying to expose in his disciples is very, very important. And I don't believe that this statement was a racist statement. I don't think it was a sexist statement. Jesus has just explained throughout the beginning of chapter 7 that it's not on the outside that what is what defiles you, what comes from your heart. To, to make this a statement about who she was or what her heritage was would be to go against everything that he's already taught in this chapter. This is a theological statement that Jesus is making. 
It, it captures her spiritual reality. It actually captures our spiritual reality as well. That apart from the mercy of God, we are nothing. We are dogs. We have no seat at the table. In contrast to the Pharisees, it's interesting that Jesus' description of her didn't upset her. When Jesus had gone after the Pharisees and called them hypocrites, uh, it says they gnashed their teeth. They plotted how they could kill him, that they could put him to death. And though Jesus' words today, as we read this 2,000 years later, may offend us or be difficult for us to hear, she, she took no offense. The, the woman who he directed the words at, she, she made no defense. She understood how the religious leaders of Jesus' day would have felt about her. But she had a desperate need and she had nowhere else to go. And it's amazing what she does is she picks up on the illustration without pause. I think Jesus understood the heart of this woman. I think Jesus understood that the way that he approached her would be effective in her situation. So if the first point is this, we are dogs. Here's the second one. God loves dogs. It's at this point in my study, I was so glad that Jesus referred to her as a dog and not a cat because if he had referred to her as a cat, then this second point would make very little sense because though God may love dogs, we all understand he could do no better than tolerate cats. So if, if you're a cat lover, um, I'm sorry. Um, we're glad Jesus called her a dog, not a cat. But it's interesting, look at what she says, verse 28. And she answered him, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What an incredible response that drew out the heart of this Gentile woman. She says, listen, the gospel may not even be intended for me. And I might just be a dog under the table. But the reality is you're enough for me. I've come to you because I know that I have nowhere else to go. And I know that when I come for you, no matter what, you have enough grace that I will not be disappointed. Jesus is going to praise her faith in a moment. But I think what happens here is Jesus went on a road trip. He left the country because he had to expose something in his disciples' heart that they wouldn't have learned if they never met this woman. If they had never seen Jesus respond to this woman in this way, they wouldn't have been aware that they struggled from some of the same prejudice and self-righteousness and pride that the Pharisees and scribes were suffering from. Her faith is praiseworthy. Just three things I'll point out because she had a proper view of herself that she was in need of mercy. In Matthew 15, 22, when she began to beg of Jesus and continually begged, she says these words, have mercy on me, O Lord. Mercy is don't give me what I deserve. Grace is saying, give me what I don't deserve. And this woman doesn't argue. She doesn't look at her circumstances and say, I deserve better than this. This isn't fair. What I've just gone through, I, I'm entitled to more. She doesn't beg from the standing that she's deserving of more. She comes and she says, listen, I don't deserve any more. I'm just asking for mercy. I'm begging you for mercy. She's not arguing from the a standpoint of negotiating with Jesus. Jesus, if you heal my daughter, then I'll quit smoking. Then I'll have a better attitude. I'll, I'll be a better person. I'll quit lying. She's not negotiating with Jesus and saying, if you're willing to do this, then I'll do this. Because quite honestly, she understands she has nothing to negotiate with. 
What does the creator of all things need from us? What is our bargaining chip that would bring Jesus to the table to strike a deal? We're not in need of a deal from our savior. We're in need of mercy from our savior. In Isaiah chapter six, the prophet is in the throne room of God. And as he looks at God in all of his majesty, he says, listen, I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. And I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And it's when he realizes his condition before a holy God that an angel comes to him and says, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. In Luke 15, Jesus tells a parable or the the story of a prodigal son. And in that case, when the son returns from the path of sin and self-destruction that he's chosen and he comes back in repentance to the father, He says, listen, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And when he says that, the father responds. He goes, get the ring, get the robe, throw a party. Because my son who is dead is alive again. That which was lost is found. If you think that you are fit, you are not. If you think that you deserve mercy, you don't get it. And it is not until this woman sees herself as a dog that she actually becomes fit to sit at the table as a child of the king. She has a proper view of self. She is in need of mercy. She has a proper view of Jesus. He is Lord. She cried out to Jesus, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She recognized her need and she recognized that he was the only one that could satisfy that need. He was Lord. We don't don't have a lot of details from Mark or from Matthew how long this woman's daughter had suffered with demon oppression. We don't know what other methods or what other people or what other rituals she had tried to to deal with this problem. We just know that the daughter was in agony. The mom was suffering. And she had to get to Jesus because he was Lord. And she had a proper view of life that he is enough. Verse 29 Jesus responds and says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Matthew 15, verse 28, Jesus answered and said, a woman, great is your faith. This is a woman who would not shut up. She would not give up. And even though Jesus was like, you're unfit to be at the table, she's like, that's okay. There's enough mercy for me in your presence. So so why would Jesus at first ignore this woman, then say the gospel was not intended for you and call her a dog. Well, I, I would argue this, that God is in the business of bringing into each of our lives the circumstances that we need to draw out our hearts, to expose our sin, and show us our desperate need for a savior. So I was reflecting on 2020 and the difficult year that that's been for for many, for for our church. I saw this quote from C.S. Lewis. It says this, it says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So this woman had been through a, a, a horrendous situation dealing with the suffering of her daughter. But it was that very painful situation with her daughter that drove her to seek a savior. God uses our trials to expose our hearts. It says in verse 30 of Mark 7, 
And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Matthew 15, 28 says her daughter, the minute Jesus said she was healed, she was healed instantly. So, so when the woman gets home, what do you think her response is to her daughter laying in bed? The demon is gone. She is healed. She is well. Man, man the joy that must have been there in that moment. The, the anticipation as she left Jesus' presence because he'd already said that she'd been healed and to get home and to find that, well, what we already know that everything that God promises is true. And to see the reality that her, her daughter has been healed. What joy must have filled that moment. I want you to understand the response of meeting with the Savior is not that we continue in our self-loathing and continue to view ourselves as dogs. There's two ways that people miss the gospel. One is they're too proud. They don't see their need for a Savior. That's what was in the heart of the religious leaders. That's what was creeping into the heart of the disciples. And Jesus exposed it. The second would be to say that I'm so unworthy that I would never approach the Savior the goal of the gospel has been to preach to the righteous that they are sinners and to preach to sinners that they can stand before a right God, not because they're worthy, but because Jesus is worthy. And this woman, she wasn't too proud to ask for help. And when we hit that position, when we understand that God is using the circumstances in our lives, even when they appear to be harsh, to drive us to our needs, knees and to show us our need for a savior, God meets us there. He changes us. The big idea this morning is simply this. It is hard to be rescued when you don't see the peril. It is hard to be rescued when you don't see the peril. We don't know the rest of the story with this woman. We don't understand how the rest of her life unfolds. But I have to believe that the moment she was willing to humble herself and approach her Savior and beg for mercy and say, even if it's only the crumbs that I receive, that's enough because you are enough. I got to believe that that radically changed the rest of her life. It radically changed the rest of her daughter's life. And it maybe changed the lives of her daughter's daughter. And the gospel continues because she had an encounter and was willing to humble herself and see the circumstances in her life even when they were harsh as part of God's plan to redeem us. As we close the service, we're going to celebrate communion. And I was reminded of a verse in 1 John 3, actually the first verse in 1 John 3, where it says, see what wondrous love is this, that we should be called the children of God. God doesn't leave us under the table because of his grace and because of his mercy. He actually gives us a seat at the table as one of his children. It's interesting. Jesus has a second encounter on this road trip. I won't take the time to go through it in any detail. We don't have the time. But let me just give you the highlights. He meets a man who is, is deaf. He can't hear and he's uh, dumb. He can't talk. He's mute. And Jesus goes to this man and it says that he takes his fingers and he thrusts them into the man's ears. And then Jesus touches his tongue and takes the spit off of his tongue and places it on the tongue of the man who is mute. And the man is healed. And, and what surprised me in this story was something very, very simple. Why the theatrics? Jesus had just healed the, the Syrophoenician woman's daughter and he never met her. She wasn't there. She was at home. 
Why does Jesus go through the theatrics with the man who is deaf and dumb? Well, because of his condition, Jesus, in essence, uses exaggerated sign language to show that he's going to heal him. He meets the man where he is at, the gospel, he takes it, and he applies it to different people in different ways to accomplish his purposes. And I don't know how you come to this service this morning. I don't know what your 2020 was like. And I can make no promises as to what 2021 will hold for you. The best that I can do with confidence is assure you of this, that you have a savior who loves you enough that be it a year that contains some harshness or be it a year that is filled with compassion, Jesus is going to bring into your life the circumstances that you need to accomplish his purposes, to expose your heart and to reveal his glory. Because we have a savior who didn't leave us under the table, but he welcomed us to the table as his children. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his disciples kind of one of those last training moments. And, and he created a visual picture. He, he took the bread from the dinner and he took it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And when the dinner was done, we're told that he took the cup after dinner. It would have been the third cup of the Passover celebration, the cup of redemption. He said, drink. This is my blood, which has been poured out for you. This do in remembrance of me.